0: One of my favorite movies, uh, I grew up watching a lot of westerns with my dad. Uh, is, any, is anybody familiar with the Grit Channel? It's like an obscure sort of like, it's not like a Channel 36, it's like a 36.3 or whatever. It's not a, not a real channel. When my dad visits from Atlanta, that's pretty much all he watches is the Grit Channel. So it's westerns and like old Charles Bronson movies. But one of the ones that I loved as a high schooler that I discovered on my own, uh, apart from my father, was the movie Tombstone. Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell, uh, Sam Elliott's in it, uh, what's the, there's just a whole bunch of, of well-known kind of 90s actors, and one of my favorite scenes is Kurt Russell's tr- moved to Tombstone, he's Wyatt Earp, he's moved to Tombstone, and he's just trying to make a living. He's a, he's a peacemaker, he's leaving that life behind, he's just trying to, to get rich, and uh, one of the guys in this gang of cowboys uh, kills a sheriff, he drunkenly kills the, the marshal, it's the marshal, and so he's going to escape, and Kurt Russell comes out there and grabs him and says he's going to stand trial, where the other cowboys, uh, identified by their red sash, try to, try to rush him and make sure that nobody is going to take their leader off to trial. And one of the guys, Ike Clanton, who just pretty much says the dumbest things in the whole movie, he says, we're going we're gonna to rush him. He can't get us all in a rush. And Kurt Russell pulls out his, his giant colt. Peacemaker and puts it right to his head and he says they may get me in a rush but not before I turn your head into a canoe and everybody said, Everybody's like oh he's bluffing and the guy's like no He's not bluffing And Kurt Russell says you're not as stupid as you look And there's this great exchange uh, Val Kilmer who's playing Doc Holliday who maybe is the best role never to get an Oscar uh, comes out and he kind of backs him up and the brothers come out, the Earp brothers come out to back him up. It was this really cool scene. And I think as, as I look at that scene, I, I think what I like about that scene and what I like about scenes like that is that I really wish that stopping injustice was that direct, was that straightforward. It takes a, a moment of courage. I got to get up the gumption to go out there and stand up for something for maybe about 30 seconds and then after that, the authorities will come and take over, and I can kind of go on with my life. I think we wish that facing injustice, stopping injustice in our society, was that direct, was that straightforward, was really that easy. Now, I know that's kind of intimidating. I mean, it's a gang of outlaws. But in some ways, that is easy and easier and more simple than facing some of the problems of injustice we face in our society today. I think a lot of us want to stand up for the powerless, but we don't know how. I think in some ways we feel powerless because it's not direct, it's not straightforward. Anybody that's tried to tackle one of the hot-button issues in our society, racism, uh, abortion, recognizes that it's not quite as straightforward as we would like. It's not a simple fix. If it was, we would have fixed it a long time ago, I think. So how do I challenge the injustice around me? How is it that I challenge injustice around? How do I, as a man, address the injustice that I find on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, in my family, and in my society? How do I do that? That's what we're going to talk about today. There's a couple of great quotes uh, by Elie Wiesel. If you don't know who Elie Wiesel is, he wrote the book Night. He wrote a couple other books, but Night is his most famous. Uh, and Night is about his time in the gas chamber in the in the Nazi concentration camps. And there's a couple of quotes that I think speak uh, to the subject of injustice. If we can see those, that'd be great. I think it's the next slide, maybe. There it is. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. As Christians, we're called to be loving people. And so when we turn a blind eye to indifference, that's the opposite of love, according to someone who I think experienced quite a bit of hate in their life. And the next quote, take sides. Neutrality never helps the, helps the oppressor, sorry. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, but never the tormented. I think we have a temptation in our lives to be silent, to be quiet, to let other people work it out. But as Christians, we're called to address injustice, some of the greatest fighters of injustice were believers. You can make the argument that Jesus himself was a great crusader against injustice. So we're going to look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah verse uh, chapter 5 is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. And I want us to see one thing we're not supposed to do when we're facing injustice, and then two things that we are supposed to do. The first thing that we're not supposed to do is we don't need to be a part of the problem. Don't be a part of the problem. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what's going on here? It's kind of a complicated paragraph. Basically, Nehemiah is leveraging most of the resources of the the people in the area to rebuild the wall. And when you put a bunch of resources towards one endeavor, it's possible and conceivable that other areas begin to suffer. And so Nehemiah does a great job of this, but the wealthier in the city, they're doing just fine. They can handle the stress, the economic stress of both projects. They're able to contribute to the wall and they're able to continue to feed their families. But the rural people, the people out in the country, who maybe wouldn't benefit so much from the wool, are having to mortgage their land just to keep up with the community collection and the taxes of the king. Not Nehemiah, but the king who's in Persia. And the people in the city have taken advantage of it. The wealthy in the city have taken advantage of it. Because they're the ones who are like, yeah, I'll give you a loan. I'll give you a good loan. Here's a high interest rate. I'll take care of you. It's all right. So it's not just neglect that's happening here. The wealthy in the city aren't just ignoring what's happening and letting things transpire. They're actually taking active advantage of an economic opportunity. That's what they are trying to do. It's outright abuse. So imagine somebody coming into your connect group, your Sunday school class, and standing up and saying something along the lines of, I'm about to lose my house. My wife and I, we just can't make ends meet right now. We're about to lose our house. And a member of your group, member of your connect group, works at a bank where their loan is. And he actively uses that information to help foreclose on that house so that he can sell it at a higher rate. That'd be pretty terrible, right? It'd be pretty awful. This means yes. Hopefully we all agree that that would be terrible. If you've done that, shame on you. Like what? I'm going to assume that nobody's done that. But that's what's going on here. Somebody knows what's taking place in the lives of these farmers, and they're doing their best to take advantage of it. Or rather, imagine a doctor maybe coveting the spouse of one of his patients, and he doesn't treat the person as well as he could because he desires the spouse. Again, that sounds really heinous. Like, you're like, wow, Travis, what what a terrible example that is. Like, who would do that? But that's what's happening here. Imagine being so focused on your own desires that you don't help your fellow man. That's what's happening here. And that is often what happens in our lives. We can sometimes, intentionally or unintentionally, that should be one of your blanks there, intentionally or unintentionally, work against the well-being of other people. You can intentionally or unintentionally work against the well-being of other people. And this typically happens when you don't have your priorities aligned correctly. So what are our priorities? Well, Augustine says our priorities are love God. It's important, right? Love other people, and then do whatever you want, which is kind of a nice three-point. You can remember that. Love God, love other people, do whatever you want. If whatever you want falls outside the first two categories, don't do it. If whatever you want to do falls in the first two categories, go ahead, have fun. It's a great ethic to live by. But what we usually do is we put number three first. Do whatever I want and either ignore the other two or kind of, I don't know, neuter them a bit so they don't have as much power and authority. It's typically how we respond to that order of priorities. We get so focused on ourselves that we ignore the needs of other people. And that makes us a part of the problem. Now, You may think to yourself, well, I'm not actively pursuing any kind of racism. I'm not actively contributing to people being poor. But that, just that attitude is one of permission. You're allowing something to transpire. You're allowing something to happen. And as men, you have to stand in the gap. You have to stand in the way of that. You have to be willing to walk out onto that street, like Kurt Russell did in Tombstone, and say, I might not be able to fix this. But I might be able to fix this for one person. Don't be a part of the problem. Next thing we need to do is to challenge the problem directly. Challenge the problem directly. Look at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry, And these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Yeah, I guess you would be. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now that's a long passage. But what's happening here? Nehemiah confronts the problem head on. And he says, He says, we're actually working on rescuing our brothers from slavery. Like we have, when I got here, there were people already enslaved, enslaved to uh, other peoples, enslaved amongst us, and we've been actively trying to buy them out of slavery. And behind our back all this time, what's happening? You're selling people into slavery. It's like a, it's like a boat with a leak, right? Right? trying to bail it out, and it just doesn't matter. It's filling back up. And so Nehemiah is angry. He's mad, and rightfully so. He's working to make people of the Jewish community safe, the exiles safe, from people outside the community. And who's the bigger threat? The people on the inside, the insiders. And this is something for him that has to be addressed head on. It's not something he can beat around the bush about. It's not something that, oh, well, we can write a check and just solve this problem. He is writing the check. He's writing a lot of checks. He's buying people out of slavery. He's addressing things kind of in a backdoor way. But guess what? It's not good enough. It's not fixing the problem. He has to be outspoken about it, and so do we. In fact, the people respond positively to it. The men and the the, the families that are doing this they're like, yeah, fair enough. We're probably taking advantage of a situation that we shouldn't be. Why do you think they respond so well? I mean, they're losing quite a bit of money here. They're losing a source of income, which always makes people feel uncomfortable, no matter how wealthy you are. My guess is that God is doing something among them. Because typically, when you say stop doing something, that is making people a whole bunch of money, what is their response? No, typically. Unless God is doing something. And I think God is doing something amongst those people. In your own life, when you begin to confront injustice head on, you have to expect God to do something. Because it's not a problem you can fix. It is super complicated. Many of our problems in our society are incredibly complicated. You have to hope that God shows up. You have to pray towards that. But let's look at the opposite perspective. Maybe look at it negatively. Let's look at somebody who can be so damaging to a system. Let's not look at a positive effect. Like you can think of a lot of positive examples of people doing great things for society. But let's look at the opposite tact. Let's look at somebody who is so poisonous to a society that they actually do harm. It's kind of like a person who smokes, right? Like a person who smokes might be in excellent physical condition otherwise. Oftentimes, people that smoke are really thin, right? Maybe they're they're able to run marathons. Maybe they just have this one habit. Maybe they work out a lot and they have really great arms. Their face is really nice. You you hear of a lot of actors uh, that are that are smokers. But what's going on inside of them? What's happening to their lungs? You can say something. It's okay. They're turning black. They're being coated with tar. You can't see it. But what's happening is a vital system in their body is failing. And it doesn't matter how much they work out. doesn't matter how beautiful they are. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are. There is something going on inside of their body that will ultimately end them. If the lungs die, the whole body dies. And in the same way, our society, our world, is incredibly interconnected. You might not think that what happens to somebody in South Dallas or in West Dallas affects you, but it does. You might not think that something that happens in our N. Espanol service matters to you because they're on the other side of campus and you don't see them. But you're a part of the body of Christ. What matters to them matters to you. You have to be outspoken at some point. A man working for the glory of God and being direct and outspoken about it can have amazing effects on a society. It can change everything. So if you're a Christian man, which I assume most of you are, at some point the disenfranchised and the downtrodden's priorities have to become your priorities. If you're a Christian man, at some point... The disenfranchised and the downtrodden's priorities have to become your priorities. That has to happen. If not now, when? At some point, you need to care about the hungry and the homeless. At some point, you need to care that there are people dying apart from Christ. At some point, you need to care that there are people who are scared to go home because they live in an abusive family. At some point, you need to stop shrugging it off, joking about it, stop saying that the media is blowing it out of proportion, and care about it. If you don't, your sanctification and following Jesus every day will be stunted. You'll be a pygmy Christian. And I look around this room and I don't see a whole lot of people that want to be stunted in their faith you're getting up this early for a Bible study, I would hope not. There's a passage in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Anybody know this passage? Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. And then he goes into a discussion about people that didn't do anything for the least of them. And they say, Lord, when did we do this? When did we we see you in this situation, hungry or cold or thirsty, and we not do anything to fix it? And Jesus says, whenever you saw somebody in this position, you didn't do it for me. And you you ignored it, you didn't do it for me. At that point, in that conversation that you're going to have with Jesus, at what point is your... Well, I thought the news blew it out of proportion, so I didn't think it was all that important. How do you think that conversation is going to go? Just curious. I don't think well. I'm not saying that our salvation is based on doing good works. But what I am saying is doing good works is a good indication of your salvation. James says that. If we ignore injustice don't care what does that say about your relationship with christ i can't answer that question for you you have to answer that question i think if you take your faith seriously you have to take the problems of the poor and the downtrodden seriously as well you have to actively be involved at some point you have to help you have to be directly involved We can't just write checks. But that doesn't mean we can't challenge the problem indirectly. We can challenge the problem indirectly as well. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table a 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Excuse me, grape juice in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah, at some point in this story, becomes governor. We're not sure when it happens, And we're not sure if it's an official title or if there's an absent of a governor, and so he kind of fills that role. But at some point between the beginning of the story and where we're at right now, he gets appointed governor of this territory. And with that comes quite a bit of luxury. And he describes how the the governors before him lived and what they were entitled to. It's like a CEO having a car, you know? Like, oh, he has a car and a driver. Um, Or a current governor having an allowance to maybe entertain people for the the sake of state dinners and things like that. He wants to represent the empire well, right? Because governors are supposed to do that. They're supposed to represent their government and do that well. But what does Nehemiah do with it? He recognizes that an additional tax on the people will be brutal. They were already too poor to pay the tax. They were already getting shipped off into slavery because they couldn't afford the normal taxes, much less a local tax. So Nehemiah basically becomes like Texas and doesn't have a state income tax. That's basically what happens here. So he starts divesting his office of these trappings. Why does he do this? Why does it say that he did this? For the good of the I'm sorry? For the, good of the for the good of the people. So he loves the people. He has an affection for the people. Look. What I'm afraid you're going to hear this morning is that I need to go out there and care for everybody. No. You are not Jesus. You are not the Messiah. You can't adequately and actively meet everybody's needs. You need to find a group of people or a person that you are passionate about and help them. Nehemiah was passionate about the people living in his community. Who are you passionate about? Outside of your own family. Blood relations don't count. He loves the people. It also says he did this because of fear of God, a concept we kind of run away from a little bit in our society. We don't want to be afraid of God. We want him to be this cuddly teddy bear. But Nehemiah has a healthy fear of God. Now, we, we try and tone this down a bit. We, we say it's like respect, You know, like you would have respect for your father. No. Like, I love my dad, and I respect my father. But when I was a kid growing up, I knew who delivered the spankings. And it wasn't mom. And I wasn't afraid of my dad. I wasn't afraid my dad abused me. He didn't at all. But I knew if I got out of line, like got crazy in a department store or whatever, started pulling things off racks, and you get that look, right? You know what look I'm talking about. Even those of you in the room who are old enough to be dads and grandfathers yourself, the look from your father is burned into your mind. You know it. You can picture it right now. It's a look. And I would be afraid. Not afraid of my dad necessarily, maybe, but afraid of the power that he wields. Nehemiah is saying, I'm afraid. I have fear of God, and it's a healthy fear because I know that God is the one who judges. He's the one who is just. He's the measure of justice. And so if there's something going on in our world that is not just, then something's out of whack. And it's our responsibility as Christians to address that. To tackle it. The fight against injustice, both spiritual and physical injustice, is driven by these two engines. The fight against injustice is driven by two engines fear of God, love of the people. It's excellent guidance on how you should live as well. What's the American dream? What's the American dream? Come on, you guys know the American dream. Work harder, make more money, and what's the goal of that? What are we trying to do for the next generation? Make Make it better than the last one, yeah. I want to be more prosperous than my granddaddy, my daddy, and I want my kids to be more prosperous than that. Be richer, be more powerful, be more comfortable, be more prestigious, more, more, more. Should that be our dream too? What if we reverse the American dream? What if your goal was to be more generous than the generation before you? Now, what if, you're, what if your, your dad, your, your family, was incredibly generous? I'm sure that many of you come from generous homes. In fact, I'm sure of that because you are generous, and you probably learned that from somewhere. But what if your goal was to be even more generous than your family was before you? To outdo mom and pop in giving. What if your goal was to be less powerful but more equal? Your goal was to be less comfortable but more hospitable? Some of us live in really nice homes, really nice homes. And the only people that ever see that are people that are related to us. Do you open your to- home up? I understand some people don't have the gift of hospitality. I struggle in that area. That's why I married an event planner. <laughs> we had an event with the singles at my house on Friday, and I, my wife and I got our calendars like crossed. And she had a work event that night, and like, panic. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? like. Food. Food's a good idea. Let's get get that. I understand not all of us have the gift of opening our home, but why do you think God gave you that place to live in? You got rooms on top of rooms you don't use. Be hospitable. What if we're less prestigious but more humble? What if our goal is to less, less, less? This is the example that Nehemiah sets. He has every right to to the trappings that come with his office. In fact, you could make a really good argument that it would be better for the people and maybe they wouldn't be so criticized by the people around them if, they, if, if he would put on airs, if he would be more prestigious because then people wouldn't criticize them as much. They would know Nehemiah was somebody to take seriously. He'd be in nice clothes, in a nice maybe carriage or cart or something. He would, his dinners would be amazing. But he puts that aside. Reminds me of somebody else. Jesus has every right to the trappings of his office and he lays them aside. Why? Because he loves you. He loves God. And he did what he wanted. Which is to give glory to the Father. And he came and he put on flesh. We just got out of the Christmas season. The incarnation should teach us a lot about how we're supposed to handle injustice. You have to get in it and get your hands dirty. And it's uncomfortable. I think it's uncomfortable. And I'm standing up here telling you to do it. There are situations that I have been in and will be in that I am uncomfortable in. I often don't know how to talk to people that are from a different background than I am. But you know how you learn to do that? You talk to people that are from a different background than you are. We all have a perspective on life and society that has been put into us by whatever we consume, our news outlets, books we read, education we got, church we go to, families we grew up in. I get it. But we are not incapable of at least appreciating a different viewpoint and responding to the suffering that that viewpoint has brought with it. We're not incapable I refuse to believe that you guys are beyond learning or beyond not learning. If that sentence makes sense. You guys are still capable of learning. We all are. In case you haven't figured it out yet, our system is broken. I don't think I have to tell you to turn on the news to see that one. There are pieces of our system that are incredibly broken at our city level, at our county level, at our state level, at our national level. There are elements that are broken. No matter what side of the political party you fall on, you would, can point to things that you are frustrated by. It got broke long before you. It got broke long before me. And it got broke long before Nehemiah, too. It got broke with Adam and Eve. The only way to start fixing a broken system is to start fixing the ways that you play into it. The contributions that you make both to the brokenness and to the healing of the brokenness. As long as we're about things that continue to promote injustice, we're contributors, we're a part of the problem. So it's really a two-step process. We're in Texas, we like the two-step, right? It's a good thing. Find out ways that you're contributing to injustice and get rid of those. And then find ways that you can contribute to justice and start putting your energy towards it. It's a two-step process. Fighting injustice is a lot less exciting than Wyatt Earp makes it out to be. Because it's messy, and I don't know that you're issued a gun, which would be really cool, I think. I don't want to use it, I just want to carry it. But really, fighting injustice is complicated. It's difficult. But I'm looking into a room of people that are incredibly successful and bright and are capable of solving problems. And I think through the power of the Holy Spirit and expecting Him to work, there is probably not a problem on the local level that we can't in some way impact and change if we were just willing. Take up the fight. Take up the fight. Because we're men, and we like to fight. We're itching for a fight. Take up a fight that's worth your time. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your grace to us, Lord, because no matter what in some ways we do, it feels overwhelming and daunting, the trials and tribulations that we see on a daily basis, that maybe at this point in our life, we've turned a blind eye to for so long we don't really even notice anymore, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would forgive us for the comments that maybe we've made in our heart or in our mind about people in other societies, other races, other groups, Lord. Things we've thought about others, Lord, rather than recognizing their position and seeking to help. I pray that you would give us grace to pursue the areas of our life where we can speak out against injustice, whether it's at work, whether it's at home. I pray that Park Cities would be a place of justice and grace. So, Father, we look forward to how you might work. Maybe in a year from now we come back and we sing praises to you as to how you're working and how you will work in the future. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.